Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my second podcast on the parables of Jesus. In our last podcast, we looked at the unique way that Jesus taught about the nature of God, how to please God, what life after death was all about, and what the kingdom of God was. Jesus understood that these were difficult topics, and so he used everyday examples, but with a twist, to get his point across. His parables made you stop and think. Sometimes they were upside down to prove a point, like a landowner paying everyone the same wage regardless of what time they showed up for work. Other times, Jesus would tell a story where his listeners would completely agree with the story. Yes, Shepherd would leave his 99 sheep to search for the one that was missing, but then his listeners would need to personalize the story to realize Jesus was talking about them. They were the sheep, and he was the good shepherd. In our first podcast, we looked at some of the parables that were unique to Matthew's gospel. We're going to, in this podcast, look at some parables unique to Mark and Luke's gospel. Did you ever stop to think about why Jesus would often teach either near a lake or from a hillside? Think acoustics. Sound travels really well across water, and it also travels well when you are speaking from a hillside. Jesus gave numerous speeches around the Sea of Galilee, and the region's combination of hills and valleys and land ascending away from the shore really provided natural amphitheaters for addressing the huge crowds. Now, Jesus may have had a booming voice, we don't know, but the natural acoustics of his surroundings really helped the crowds, sometimes numbering in the thousands, to hear what he was saying. Mark recounts Jesus telling the parable of the growing seed. This is Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 29. This one was told by a lake. He said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he doesn't know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. This is interesting. Since this parable is only found in Mark and there's no explanation found anywhere in the Gospels. You know, many of the parables were about the kingdom of God, as we've seen. This idea of the kingdom of God was a new concept for his followers. And so Jesus did try to give them lots of different examples of what the kingdom of God would be like. We know that many of the Jews who were waiting the promised Messiah thought that once the Messiah came onto the scene, things would immediately improve and God would rule. Now, this parable really says the opposite. Because whether the man sleeps or is awake, the seed grows all by itself. And 
There are many theologians who feel that Jesus may have been trying to illustrate here that the kingdom of God is growing almost hidden in the midst of the earthly kingdom. I discussed in the first podcast that Jesus said in Mark's gospel, actually right before this parable, that the kingdom of God was at hand. Jesus is trying to tell his followers that right now, in that moment, he was planting the seeds of the kingdom of God in their heart. In the words of becomingchristians.com, Jesus was starting to motivate these listeners to have a yearning for God's kingdom. He was helping them to focus their minds on the kingdom of God and to make it a top priority to be a part of it in the future. Now, this is fascinating. In other words, as we come to know Jesus, we actually become filled with the expectation of eternal life and God's kingdom here on earth. Remember, Jesus taught his followers how to pray the Lord's Prayer, which says, Thy kingdom come. Jesus wanted them and us to yearn for the kingdom of God and also to know that it is starting here in our midst, even if we are unaware of it. In Mark chapter 13, verses 34 through 37, Jesus teaches a parable about the returning owner. This time, Jesus's audience was his disciples. The entire 13th chapter of Mark has Jesus explaining how we should all live while waiting for Christ's return. They were impatient 2,000 years ago for Christ to make all things right, and I think it's fair to say we haven't grown any more patient today. But Scripture tells us that God has a different sense of time than we do, and in some ways this is good. Peter actually tells us in his second letter that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He says, instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. In other words, if you're anxious for Jesus to come back, what are you doing to make sure everyone knows about him? Jesus wants everyone to know about him so that no one will perish. So the fact that he hasn't returned means we still have work to do in spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now in this parable, Jesus is reminding us no one knows the day or the hour that God will return. It's like a man going away, he says. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door, keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you don't know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Now, please know, God isn't again sleeping. That's not what this means. Remember, he even rested on day seven. Sleep in this story kind of represents being asleep at the switch, not paying attention, letting your guard down, letting life fall into disarray, having a false sense of security that the owner is not going to come anytime soon. A great way to think about this in contemporary terms is 
not letting the noise of the world distract us from focusing on what truly matters, the return of the master. Jesus, when he returns, he needs to find us alert, ready, and sharing his good news with others. Now, Luke has the most parables, and many are unique to his gospel. So we're going to look at a few of them. One of my favorites is the parable of the money lender. Luke chapter 7, verses 41 through 43. In order to understand the context of this parable, which was told to just a few dinner guests, you first need to know what happened just prior to Jesus telling this story. Now, Jesus was invited to have dinner at a Pharisee's home. The guy's name is Simon. And during dinner, a woman comes in. Um, she wasn't invited, and she's a known sinner. And she wipes Jesus' feet with her tears, and then she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair, and then she kisses his feet and pours perfume on them. Now, Luke tells us that Simon is like beside himself, and he's muttering to himself that if Jesus really was a prophet, he would know who this sinful woman was and would basically be horrified at her behavior. Jesus then addresses the host by name, and he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And this is what he says. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven? You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Oh, this guy just got schooled by Jesus. But then Jesus isn't done. He then turns to the woman and he says to Simon, the host, Look, I was a guest in your home and you didn't give me anything to wash my feet. And yet this woman, she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't kiss me upon entering your home, but this sinful woman has not stopped kissing me from the moment she saw me. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume all over my feet. I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. So true. Sometimes those of us who have grown up with faith tend to take our salvation for granted. But new believers who are just starting to understand the magnanimous love of Jesus, they literally fall at his feet in gratitude and worship. Convicted. What's our attitude of gratitude? The next parable well, it's overheard by some of the disciples, but it's directly told to a man in a crowd. And he calls out to Jesus because he wants Jesus to settle a dispute between him and his brother about an inheritance. Oh boy, this should be good, right? And, you know, it wasn't unusual for people to go to a rabbi and have them settle a dispute. But Jesus, being Jesus, instead of Answering the man, he tells the man a parable. And this is found in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. And it's affectionately called the parable of the rich fool. And he told them this parable. 
The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This will be how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Well, at first glance, Jesus' listeners would think, well, the rich man was acting prudently. But Jesus wants us to think in terms of eternity. The man was negligent in making himself rich in the things that mattered to God. Now, as I looked at biblical commentary on this parable, it pointed out what wasn't really even immediately apparent to me. The man's story is all about him. He says, my crops, my grain, my barns. Oh, that sounds a lot like us. We tend to focus on getting our earthly house in order while our financial advisor might say, yeah, that's wise. We need to make sure we have our spiritual house in order as well. The parable of the watchful servant, Luke chapter 12, 35 through 40. And the one that immediately follows, Luke 12, 42 through 48, the parable of the wise and foolish servants. Well, they're probably familiar to you. The parables were told within earshot of the disciples. And the focus here was for all of us to prepare for Christ's second coming. What's interesting is that Peter, in between these two, says, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? Hmm. Probably everyone who has ears to hear would be the answer. The first parable has this key phrase, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You must always be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And then the next parable of the wise and foolish servants has a similar message. I'm going to use the summary by JesusFilm.org. It explains it this way. A master puts a manager in charge of his servants while he's away. It's the manager's duty to ensure that the servants are fed and paid on time. But what would happen if that manager took advantage of his freedom and responsibility? What if he figured, ah, the master's not going to return soon? So he became self-indulgent and abusive. Well, the master would show up unannounced and put that manager to death. It appears here that Jesus is addressing his disciples who would be put in positions of authority in his household. But in a bigger picture, Jesus is also addressing everyone who finds themselves in positions of authority within a church. And this is so important for us to understand because we all need to be vigilant and make sure we're doing the master's business when he returns. We all know how we're supposed to behave until Christ's return, but 
This is especially vital for leaders. Now, God's not going to hold us responsible for gifts he hasn't given us. But we will be held responsible for gifts and duties he has given us to do. The next parable in Luke is a bit strange because it's about a fig tree that's not bearing fruit. Now, in the Old Testament, though, trees bearing fruit was often used as a symbol of godly living. And it's an interesting parable because it starts with these people from Galilee telling Jesus that some fellow Galileans had been unfairly killed by Pilate. And did this mean that their sin was worse because of their terrible death? And Jesus immediately assures them, no, uh, their sin had nothing to do with the manner of death. In fact, we're all going to die someday, but we don't have to stay dead. And those who believe in him will, in fact, not perish, but have eternal life. And then Jesus tells them this parable about a man who's growing tired of growing a tree in his vineyard that's not producing any fruit. So he asked the gardener to tear it down. But the gardener asked for an opportunity to make it fruitful. So the owner concedes by giving the gardener one more year. But after that year, if it's not bearing fruit, he says, I'm cutting it down. Now Jesus meant, oh, we all have an expiration date. We don't know when our time's going to be up. So we actually need to start bearing fruit now. The gardener's been taking good care of us. What fruit do we show as evidence of all that he's given us? You know, I actually happen to think that it might be a good habit for us to get into as we're having our dinner conversation, asking each other how we are using our God-given talents to bear fruit, or maybe encouraging others by saying, I see the fruit that you have been bearing. I know it's hard for us to understand that God owes us nothing, and yet he gives us everything. He's the gardener. As believers, I think we do sometimes feel that we're owed a little extra special treatment because we're believers. Obeying God is actually what we're called to do. It's not as if we've done anything extra special by doing this. It's actually the bare minimum that we're expected to do. Obedience doesn't gain us brownie points. We have been brought into God's kingdom because of his great love, not because we're deserving. I actually like how my NIV study Bible explains this. It says, faith is total dependence on God and a willingness to do his will. It's not something we use to put on a show for others. It is complete and humble obedience to God's will, readiness to do whatever he calls us to do. The amount of faith is not as important as the right kind of faith, faith in our all-powerful God. And now this is so interesting. Do you know about the parable of the friend seeking bread? I know, right? It's in Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 8. And it's right after Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray the Lord's Prayer. And 
this is a parable about this guy who goes to a friend's house at midnight and he asks him for some bread for a friend who's shown up unexpectedly at his house and he has nothing to give him. The man at first makes excuses and he doesn't want to be bothered, but the man persists in requesting the bread until the man finally relents and, and gives him as much bread as he needs. Okay, kind of a weird story, right? But Jesus summarizes the story. He says, I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him the bread because he is your friend. Yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. In other words, Jesus wants his followers to have courage, to have courage and to make bold requests and to pray, just as he taught them, until God moves. In other words, if a friend is moved enough by your audacity of showing up in the middle of the night asking for bread, how much more will God who loves you? Now, right after this, Jesus tells his disciples, and I know you're familiar with this, but it means so much more now that I understand the context. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. This is so powerful because this parable is not to demonstrate God's reluctance or insensitivity in answering our prayers, but it's more about persistence in prayer helps us to understand how much we need God. And being persistent in prayer helps us to recognize God's work and goodness. I'm going to end this podcast with a lesser known parable in Luke called Counting the Cost. Luke 14, 28 through 33. Now, Jesus never tried to attract crowds. He was never like, look at me over here. He was not interested in celebrity. And he would often turn to those who were following him and ask them, why are you following me? He knew many were curious because of his miracles and his celebrity. So he would challenge them with a parable to help them analyze their motives. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, oh, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish it. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's even able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able... He'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Ouch. Right before this, Jesus said that those who followed him must be willing to carry his own cross. Oh, they certainly knew what that meant. Jesus wanted these followers, and also us, 
to really think what they were doing and following him. He wanted them to make a decision. Look, if the attraction's superficial, just turn back now. Following Christ requires total submission. You're either all in or you're all out. Jesus wants us to avoid half building a Christian life and then abandoning it because the cost was too high. What are the costs of following Jesus today? Loss of wealth, social status, friends, family, time, career? Following Christ does not mean easy street. John even said this in 1633 when he quoted Jesus. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Right after this parable, Jesus talks to the crowd about salt. Yeah, salt. (laughs) He says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be salty again? It is neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. And remember, he just told the parable about how much it'll cost to follow him. And now he is saying, some of you, some of you here following me are like wet salt that dries and then there's nothing left. There's nothing left but a tasteless, worthless residue. And he doesn't want followers like that. Those who blend into the world and avoid the true cost of following him, they're kind of in, but kind of not. He says, you know, when his followers lose their saltiness, they're worthless. Why are we called to be the salt of the world? Salt preserves. We are to be preserving the good in the world. Keep it from spoiling and bring new flavor to life. As my NIV Bible explains, this requires some careful planning, willing sacrifice, and an unswerving commitment to Christ's kingdom. Being salty is not easy, but it is what we're called to be as true followers of Christ. So in summary, Jesus's parables remind us to be bold, be ready, and be a bit salty. Have a blessed day.